a lot of guys, especially early on when they're first in training or have just jumped into a new program, will usually approach way too fast and, and they end up getting tough saturated as the hoist operator in the back. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, welcome back. The great thing about the helicopter industry is that there are so many different subspecialties or different roles to learn about. With that, it means that there are people spread all around the world with all this expertise on topics that we can all learn from. And sometimes hearing about one thing in a completely different context helps us to make connections of our own that come up from our own experiences and our own backgrounds. I've enjoyed getting this episode together as it's relatively content heavy as we get to, to dive in and tackle helicopter hoist operations. And the time on this episode is pushing over one and a half hours. Now, personally, I haven't done a hoist operation in over 10 years now. And so this is a great chance to, to get a refresher for me. And a lot of the people that I work with now and, and train have never actually flown in a helicopter that is fitted with a hoist. If that's the case for you, then I think you'll find this really useful and a solid introduction to this type of helicopter operation. To assist us today, we've got some excellent help from two of the team at SR3 Rescue Concepts. This is a company in the US set up specifically, as the name suggests, to provide helicopter rescue training for front seaters, back seaters, and also the folks that actually go down on the wire to affect the rescue. David Callan is the co-owner of the company and has a background as a pilot in law enforcement and rescue operations. And Rob Monday is an Australian living and working in Canada and a hoist training instructor at SR3. The guys give a bit more info on their careers and the unique origin of the company in the interview. So let's jump into it. Rob Monday, David Callan, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Nick. Appreciate it. Brilliant, guys. Well, you guys are through from sr3rescueconcepts.com uh, is the website, and we'll come back to that at the end. But essentially, we're going to talk a whole heap about uh, rescues and uh, sling ops today. So we might, just, I guess, uh, initially dive in. The easiest way will just be to get a, a quick background uh, and give some context, and then we'll get into some of the content. So, Rob, do you want to give us a, a quick walk down of how you got into helicopters and, and what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was actually a little bit by chance, I suppose. You know, I finished high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do and ended up uh, up in the Victorian snowfields doing a, a diploma of outdoor education, which ironically helps me out a lot uh, now. Uh, and then it kind of got me through looking for summer work. I ended up doing some seasonal stuff, uh, firefighting on a rappel crew down in Victoria in Australia, and then ended up transitioning across to Canada and basically working back and forth seasonally. Uh, on a rappel crew in in, uh, in Canada as well. So I was transitioning back and forth uh, and worked my way kind of through the ranks there. And I did 10 seasons in the end of, of firefighting, which was fairly significant overall. Uh, I ended up in, in Queensland for a little bit. I went to Careflight. I don't want to plug 
too much, but I went to Careflight. They did a bang up job. I did an introductory crewman course with them and uh, was interested in getting more into the aircraft side of things. Yeah, then basically started knocking down some doors. I was lucky enough to to walk into the RACQ Capricorn base in, in Rockhampton. And uh, yeah, the timing was right. I got lucky up there and ended up ended up working there for a couple of years. It was a single pilot IFR operation. We did MVGs. We did it was a dual role, so we did rescue swimmer. We did hoist operator, so an air crewman role, rescue crewman role there. As fate would have it, I ended up back in Canada and ended up uh, marrying my lovely wife over here now. But yeah, we we ended up finding some work over here doing some marine pilot transfer stuff. We ended up doing the first uh, marine pilot transfer program. Up on the north coast of British Columbia in Canada, that was two years of that, pretty much every day, out hoisting to some boats. And now I'm working with Black Room helicopters down in uh, the Cedar Sky area, so Vancouver and north of there, just helping them with getting their uh, their hoist program up and running. We're doing some search and rescue stuff, some power line maintenance, and a whole bunch of other things on the side. Uh, and then obviously I'm now doing a little bit of work with SR3 as well as, a, as an instructor with them when they have courses going on just to keep the tool sharp, so to speak. That's about it. And Rob, I was going to say, going through that, how much of that was formal training and how much of it was just on the job? This is how you do that particular operation. Yeah, totally. So I think when I showed up, you know, for, for rappel training in Australia, it was a three-week uh, three rappel course, which which gives you quite a good introduction to to the flight side of things and the aircraft side of things. It's fairly introductory, but it gets you going. And then beyond, I mean, that's kind of on the job, I suppose. That wasn't out of my pocket. Uh, and then likewise with the with the rappel stuff in Canada, a lot of that was uh, on the job, you know, you know, three to four weeks of initial training and then on the job beyond that to get through to those dispatcher type crew chief roles with that program. I did pay for, for a two-week course in, in Queensland in at Careflight, uh, and that was the only training I've ever actually really paid for out of my own pocket all the training in Rockhampton was on the job when I first showed up there and then continuing from there uh, we were given some training when I started in Canada with the marine pilot stuff that was all on the job training but uh, the client ended up uh, putting the bill for that which was great and then all the stuff at Blackcomb I kind of I'm the one providing the training to other people now internally there so that yeah not all was actually uh, paid for by me no, that's right. I was more along the lines of, you know, was it, you know, formal training in terms of here's the training syllabus or is it sort of, you know, you're working with people and they're, and they're showing you on the day, okay, you know, this is how we how we do the actual operation. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's kind of a combination of both, I suppose. Awesome. Okay. And and Dave, you're a front seater. <laughs> well, your sort of background then in terms of, of getting into the industry on your side. Yeah, so uh, on my end, I uh, just kind of grew up around aviation, and uh, my my dad actually was he was a uh, patrol pilot and a rescue pilot for uh, LA County Sheriff's Department uh, back in the day. So um, I always looked up to my dad, and um, you know it was always uh, a long term goal of mine to to try to do the exact same thing. So I basically started flying airplanes in the early '90s and um, got my private single and multi engine land rating, and then eventually got my instrument rating. Uh, so just kind of flew airplanes recreationally for a number of years, and then I eventually hired on with Las Vegas Metro Police in the beginning of uh, year 2000. And Metro has an aviation unit, so my goal was to eventually become a pilot there and then uh, work my way up to do rescue. So 2007, was able to transfer to the Air Support Unit. Did uh, you know went through the, the general course that the, the agency does all the training in house. So got my private, got my commercial, eventually got my CFI. I got my uh, night vision goggle instructor endorsement. And then um, after a number of years, I uh, got trained to start flying rescues. And the uh, the rescue ops 
um, initially that uh, we were doing were hoist operations in HH1A Chewies. And then uh, we also did, and still do, a lot of light rescue operations in the MD500s, mainly the F model. So a lot of that's like one skid tow-in um, type rescues. Um, also did quite a bit of short haul uh, in the 500. A few years ago, we acquired an Airbus H145. So now all of our uh, hoist torque is done in the 145. Uh, and then in addition to that, kind of eventually ended up becoming the safety pilot for the, the unit. And then um, also the the CFR part 133, uh, chief pilot of external load ops for, for the agency. That's basically it. So it all kind of started with my uh, with my dad as an inspiration. And now I'm doing the same thing he did a number of years ago. He would have been pretty stoked, I imagine, to see you sort of getting into the same or similar organization. Yeah, you know, he is. Uh, and we talk about it all the time. I actually was talking to him about it this morning. And uh, it's cool. You know, he's he's super proud uh, and it's cool to follow in his footsteps. So did you do seven years as a as a beat cop to, to get into aviation? Is that about right? I did. Yeah, I actually did. Uh, that's a requirement with the agency. Um, you have to have a number of years as a, a regular patrol officer to be able to test uh, to go to the air support unit because the focus is, is patrol flying to support uh, the patrol officers. So uh, that's the main goal. So, yeah, you have to have that experience as an officer to eventually transition over to the unit. There's a there's a book out there. I think it's um, uh, written by, is it Kimball? I'm not too sure, but he he's uh, he went through a police officer. I think he was in L.A., and uh, and went through. Uh, I've heard of tracking down. Um, I think he still does talks for, for police agencies and that. But yeah, he describes the thing too. He he just wanted to fly, and he just had to suck up the uh, the ground roll and just keep applying until he got through uh, on on the air police side. Yeah, and you know it's uh, basically in most police departments that's how it is. If you want to get into their aviation unit, and I can tell you honestly, I, I hired on uh, with the agency to be a patrol officer. You know, really that was kind of the main goal. And then uh, if I could eventually get into the air unit, that was that was my long term goal. But essentially, I hired on to be a patrol cop, and I enjoyed every minute of it. It's it's a blast. It's definitely a unique career. It's very rewarding. Um, it's a lot of fun. So uh, you know, at times I actually miss it. But the cool thing is, you know, you actually get to participate in that role you're just doing it from a you know a helicopter uh, at altitude instead of in a police car but you're basically doing the same job it's just a different way you go about doing it all right well look i'm sure there's a whole interview i'd love to do just around on that sort of police ops uh, flying things but uh, i guess at some point you got out and uh, jason who's not here on the line with us today is again another one of the partners there at sr3 can you give yeah just a quick intro to Jason and and how you guys got into your current role? Yeah, so Jason and I actually hired on the same day, and we were in the same police academy. Uh, we actually sat next to each other, which is pretty funny, but we became very close friends. And he transferred up to the search and rescue section not long after I came up to the air support section. So he basically became uh, the senior search and rescue officer after a number of years, and he's really passionate about training. Uh, he likes to stay abreast of all the, the current techniques and uh, just really, really super good guy and uh, just really cares a lot about the job and the people he works with. So we got to work together, you know, for a number of years in that role. Essentially, the, the company was founded uh, because we had a very close friend, one of our best friends named Dave Van Buskirk, who was also a search and rescue officer in the unit. And in 2013, we actually lost him. He fell on a night uh, hoist operation up in Mount Charleston. And uh, he unfortunately fell to his death. And the accident was basically a dynamic roller roll out incident with the hook. So, uh, you know, obviously really, really difficult uh, loss for, for the agency and all of his friends and especially his family. 
But uh, Dave was probably the most talented and uh, compassionate uh, officer that any of us have ever worked with. And he was just extremely good at his job and really set the standard for everybody in the agency, especially in, in the SAR unit. So after it occurred, after a couple of years, Jason and I were just kind of saying, man, you know, we would really like to eventually start a training company and try to, you know, prevent any accident from ever happen, happening again. So nobody ever has to experience this, you know, it's kind of off the thought of it's, if it's predictable, it's preventable. So that was really the catalyst. And the company is named after Dave's call sign. His call sign was SR3. And uh, so that's essentially what we did. The company is founded in Dave's honor. And that's a, a pretty good story to to lead into things and that. We're going to jump all over the shop, and I did have some notes there, but I guess if people cut out at this point and left with nothing else, Rob, do you want to just introduce a dynamic rollout and what it is and what, you know, if you take nothing away from this lesson or this uh, sort of interview, how do you stop dynamic rollout? Yeah, for sure. I think there's, there's two parts to it. Obviously, the equipment that you're using uh, plays a big part, and then also the way that you, you use it as well. Um, so uh, dynamic is, is effectively the it's a two-part thing. It's the ability for the equipment that you're using to actually get into a position on the hook where if it's weighted in the incorrect way, you can actually push the gate of the hook open and you can fall out of it effectively. So uh, there's, like I said, there's two parts of it. If, if the equipment that you're using is physically unable to roll over into that position due to due to the geometry of the of the hardware that you're using between the hook and the whatever is beneath it, then you've kind of eliminated part of the problem uh, by not having that available to you as an option. Um, and then the second part of it too is is the type of hook that you're using, and uh, there are certain hooks out there, uh, one in particular that that almost totally eliminates that possibility i think there's a brand new version of that hook coming out shortly and uh, and that that as far as we can tell is going to totally eliminate the possibility of that happening and unfortunately there's a lot of guys still out there now that again maybe don't know or, or don't have the ability to, to change that equipment over but in terms of an investment in the future it's one of the cheapest things you can do to change is change the hook that you're using and then no matter what gear you're going to be using in the future it, it, it almost it almost makes that foolproof in terms of being able to roll out of the gear. Now, Rob, I'm going to take the side of the the everyman pilot here who who doesn't know anything about sling hooks and and try and explain that. Um, and I'm going to use wave my hands here in front of me to describe it. Um, for someone who's got no background to it, we're talking about the the, the hook that goes on the end of the wire uh, down from the winch, and you would normally put like a D shaped uh, kind of shackle uh, through that. And I guess if you're talking like a sling, you might have two of those go through that hook. And normally there's a, a gate that would then close that that hook off to stop the the uh, the D shackles you know falling out. But you can get a situation where if you twist the the sling or twist the the D shackles around, they kind of grip and climb up on each other and climb up the side of the hook towards the gate, and can then actually roll and, and disengage the gate and, and come off the hook. That's essentially what we're talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and uh, to help visualize it too, I know you're a fan of the show notes. We can we can definitely put a link up to a short video in there demonstrating exactly what that looks like, if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be perfect, just to give people an idea. Because again, it's just a you know for a lot of people, it's a new term, and it's hard to visualize. It, so. Yeah, uh, and you know, we hear the same thing it. can actually happen. Uh, the same thing can happen with the belly hook on the aircraft too. Some cargo hooks under your aircraft are actually able to do the same thing potentially. Sure. All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive into our kind of little outline we had. 
why is um, you know slinging such a an important thing for helicopters in terms of what it gives us an extra capability? I guess we didn't hey, discuss Rob, who was going to. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say we, did, we probably didn't uh, break up who's going to take it, but uh, yeah, sure, Rob, do you want to tackle that one first? Yeah, sure, I can start off. Uh, yeah, so I think there's there are some advantages to it. Obviously, the big one for for us in a lot of the places we go is the reason why we're hoisting is because there is no place available to land. If if the safest option is to land or to perform a hover exit operation or something like that, if that's the safer option, then that's what we're going to do, right? We're not we're not trying to be rock stars here, and we're not trying to to make things harder than they need to be. But there are times when when you aren't able to land, and therefore you have to you know, uh, look into look into some kind of external load operation like a hoist or like a uh, like a long line uh, type rescue with a fixed rope under the aircraft. The advantages of the hoist obviously are that you're able to to change the length of that line infinitely between zero and well for most aircraft up to almost 300 feet. So there's very very few situations where 300 feet isn't enough. But if you're using a long line, you either show up with 300 every time or you have to change that line the situation, which if you're going out on a rescue, you don't always know what that situation is going to be. So the ability to arrive on scene, you don't have to actually land the aircraft. You can you can crack open the doors. You can take a look at what you're dealing with. And you can basically make a plan to deal with the situation, whatever it is on the day. If you've flown 100 miles to get out there or you're going offshore or, or something like that, I mean, yeah, it really is. It really is a no-brainer in terms of the options. Uh, a lot of the hoist-equipped aircraft have, have some twin-engine capability as well, so some may not be able to hover on one engine once they're actually arriving on scene, but the entire transit time back and forth are, are quite often a, a kind of secondary benefit of, of that hoist is that it comes on an aircraft that's much more capable. But then if you arrive on scene and you have that one engine in operative capability and you can actually maintain a hover in the event of an engine failure, then... Clearly, the safety benefits are exponentially increased at that point. A lot of hospitals, you know, helipads and stuff like that have, have restrictions on what you can actually land on them, especially if they're in built-up areas. So twin engine, CAD-A for the pilots out there, stuff like that is, uh, is a huge benefit as well. And I'm sure Dave can speak a little more to that one. But I think it's just the ability of flexibility. You can, you can arrive on scene and, and make a plan, and, and more often than not, you can, you can solve the problem with the equipment that you have on, on hand. And Dave, as far as uh, history uh, wise, there, there's a couple of notes there. I'm not sure if you wrote those or if Rob wrote the, the history side of, of slinging. Yeah, so essentially, uh, the, the first hoist rescue was in the 1940s, and it was actually Igor Sikorsky that did it in Connecticut. There was a sinking barge that uh, <clears throat> some folks needed to be rescued from, and uh, he was able to fly out there and actually successfully pluck some people off of the sinking barge. So that was the first, as far as you know, documented uh, helicopter hoist rescue. And it's evolved since then over the years as the aircraft have become more capable, the technology and the equipment has become more capable. Uh, but it really started to ramp up in the 50s and 60s all around the world and pretty widespread today, I would say, all across the world. Uh, a lot of people do either a combination of hoist or short haul type rescues uh, with a fixed long line beneath the aircraft. Um, but there's a lot of applications for it. I think the most widely used application is, is pretty obviously in search and rescue. There's also uh, applications for it in power line type utility work and things of that nature. But as Rob said, it gives just a lot of flexibility to be able to put people and equipment in and out of very inaccessible areas. And the nice thing about wasting is you really, it's not a rushed procedure. If it's done properly, it should be very slow, very methodical, very planned out. So there's a lot more 
control over the ability to bring the people in and out, in my opinion, as opposed to a short haul, which there's nothing wrong with short haul. But, you know, if you have the ability to actually bring people up and down from the aircraft at the speed that you want to, it just gives you a lot more flexibility and options and then increased safety. I think from my perspective, with a, uh, a whole bunch of experience in the rappel side of things, I mean, for anyone that doesn't have an understanding of rappelling, you're, you're descending on a rope. And I mean, compared to the hoist, that's a one-way ticket, right? Like you're going down and there is no up. In that particular thing as well, a lot of people are using rappelling as an option for, for deployment as well. And in that case, I mean, to be able to, to double your, your options and actually come back up to the aircraft again is, is a huge one as well. Dave, when you're talking short haul, you're talking about a basically a, a long line under the belly hook and you're basically picking up, moving the people just to a, a safe location and then landing and then putting them in the aircraft from there. Yeah, exactly. And it's a fixed line. So it's attached to a, a hook on the underside of the aircraft. And then there's a secondary safety device, usually either a second hook or what they call a belly band, which is a device that would wrap around the underside and then come into the uh, cabin of the aircraft and then be secured so that if the primary hook were to fail, then the secondary hook would would uh, catch the load as a backup. But that's yeah, you know anywhere from uh, industry standards, anywhere from 100 to 200 foot fixed line. And um, yeah, people and equipment can be picked up and flown directly in and out of areas that way. But uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, you know that's a fixed line. And as Rob said, you know you just can't bring people up or down. They're just suspended below the aircraft. So, you know, having the ability to bring somebody up, if there's a problem, get them back into the aircraft is a huge advantage. And, uh, you know, as well, if you fly into an area and maybe the conditions aren't what you expected, maybe the wind's picked up or it's going to be a little bit more challenging for the, the pilot to maintain some stability and control. Well, if you have a short haul, you have these people or gear, you know, suspended beneath the aircraft. Whereas with a hoist, you don't even have to lower anybody out. You can maybe try some different approaches or, you know, look at some other options. You don't even have to initiate the hoist. So just some, you know, some differences between the two techniques. But it's just nice to be able to not have to put anybody below the helicopter until you're ready to essentially when you get on scene. All right. In Australia, is a, you know, again, a fair bit of restriction around it in terms of qualifications you know, yeah, equipment and all those sort of things. So I'm imagining it's a little bit similar elsewhere. It's not something you're just going to go out you know, in, in an aircraft and try for the first time uh, with uh, whatever gear you can pick up. So what are some of the legislation requirements around conducting sling ops? Yeah, so, Rob, I think uh, you'd probably be worth mentioning. I'll let Rob discuss a little bit in Canada because it's it's interesting. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's differences between the countries and Canada is a little bit more restrictive. So I'll let Rob uh, take that question. Yeah, I certainly think there's there's some huge differences, and I mentioned this in in my notes here. Is like depending on who you are and where you're from, from the aspect of receiving training in these operations, either you need to be really, really, really sure that you're on top of what the regulations allow you and do not allow you to do. Otherwise, you can find yourself in in real trouble. I mean, for example, in Canada, there's a couple of really critical things that we need to we need to pay attention to uh, if we are going to do any short haul or long line type stuff, which I don't want to get into too much, but you do need to have that belly band or some kind of second hook underneath the aircraft. It's not a matter of just clipping a rope into into the belly hook and, and off you go. You don't you can't do that. It's not legal here. So uh, that's obviously a restriction which doesn't exist down in the US. They're able to. It's not advisable, but they're able to just clip straight into the belly and, and go to work, especially with hoisting in Canada. For anything what we would consider to be work access, so basically anything that's not an emergency services operation, so things like power line maintenance and the marine pilot transfer stuff that I was working on as well, 
you do actually have to legally have that one engine in operative uh, hover performance in order to in order to perform that work. You're not allowed to physically go out in there and do it in either a single engine aircraft or a twin. For example, some of the uh, the less powerful Bell mediums and, and stuff like that. You're not actually allowed to go out and do it in those unless they can have a chart that allows them to uh, to perform that that operation with one engine in operative. Which is a challenge that can get costly and it can get uh, really restricted sometimes in terms of where you can actually go out and do this work, uh, if, especially if it's not for rescue. If it is for rescue, then you're allowed to go out and do it in single engine aircraft and that makes things a little uh, a little less restrictive. But things like equipment have fairly large uh, restrictions on them which don't exist down in the US. We In Canada, we have to have approval for every piece of equipment for each aircraft that we operate. So it's not a matter of just walking into the local rescue store and, and buying some harnesses and going to work and... I think Dave can maybe speak to the US side of things a little more, but that that certainly is not anywhere near as restrictive down there in terms of what they can do. Yeah, and that's essentially uh, the way it is in the US. They're, they're, the industry is regulated, just not as strictly. And uh, one good example of that is, like Rob had mentioned, the actual equipment in the aircraft is, you know, every single piece has to be certified up in Canada for that purpose. And, you know, the, the manufacturers that make the gear obviously make them to certain standards. But in the U.S., that portion of it is a lot uh, less regulated. It's very similar as far as what's required to be able to do the type of flying. Uh, but there's under the, the public use exemption, which we have in the U.S., it's a little bit more liberal. Essentially, any uh, you know public safety type of an operation is is able to operate under that that regulation that says that you know some of those things uh, don't necessarily need to be followed. It's in the best interest of the agencies to you know follow the the I think what what I would say are the industry standards. But as Rob said, you know you don't have to under certain uh, public use exemptions either have like a, a certification under in the U.S., which is um, CFR Part 133, uh, you can actually be exempt from certain things like actually holding the certificate if you're a public safety agency. So a little bit more liberal in the U.S. I was going to say, I can't speak to the details of the Australian situation, but I'm sure it's going to be <laughs> up there with one of the most restrictive in the world in terms of all those requirements as well. Yeah, totally. From my perspective, it's, uh, from my understanding of it, and this was quite a while ago now, things have changed a little bit since I was there, but I would say it's somewhere where we're at in Canada and where the US is at. And that's I think that's a, a good middle ground. I think perhaps in times Canada can be a little too restrictive in the wrong areas and isn't really you know, a common sense approach. And, and at times I think the US with, with some of the lack of restrictions, it's where we see some of the accidents occurring and, and people like I know you mentioned earlier, Nick, about people just going and grabbing some gear and, and going to work. And to be honest, that that's happening out there not as not often and, and certainly more than we would like to see happening though. And those are the guys that may potentially find themselves having problems is the ones that do just go out there, grab the gear and think it's just a matter of going to work and, and not really having a true understanding of how that equipment works together and, and how to use it best to, to achieve the goal that they're trying to achieve. Any input from uh, EASA land? How, how does the, the uh, European side look? I think uh, from what I understand, again, I've never worked in Europe, but I've certainly spoken to quite a few people over there. And I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a piecemeal at times. It's kind of all over the place. Uh, I think at times you'll see a lot of documentation, a lot of regulation come out of Europe saying very, very restrictive and this is what you must do and this is what you have to do. And then you'll, you'll also see some fairly liberal ways of doing business as well. You know, guys are just literally tying ropes to, to the end of hoist hooks and, and extending their hoist lines by a couple of hundred feet or meters. And yeah, there's, there's some really interesting stuff going on over there. And I can't speak specifically to the legislation, but I know 
I think they're working really hard. It seems that there's a lot of people working really hard on trying to get that dialed in, and, and particularly with uh, with certification for the actual crew members, guys like the hoist operators in the back that up until now, I mean, really haven't been really all that well regulated in terms of their training and experience. So I think they're doing some really good things, but I think uh, it sounds like from what I've heard that there are still some challenges as well. All right, well, let's get into the guts of it then. So we've got a, a couple of points there in terms of just a, a rough outline of giving someone who's new to slinging a you know intro of the, of the key points. So yeah, how you guys want to tag team as we go through that? Um, we'll start with uh, some of the aircraft side of things, the safety precautions for the aircraft. Yes, yeah, so I think we can kind of give you an insight from uh, the, both the pilot's perspective and then from the, the hoist operator or the, the rescuer's perspective in the back, and Rob Rob can definitely do a good job at that. You know, for the pilots out there, anybody that's never done any type of vertical reference flying or, you know, um, long line or, or hoist-type operations, it's... Uh, there's a lot that goes into it and there's quite a bit of actual like communication and, and CRM between the, uh, the crew, both pilots, if it's a, a dual pilot operation, some folks do a hoist operation, single pilot, uh, but there's a lot of communication between the hoist operator and the actual pilot in command. As I said, the, these types of things are, are uh, very slow and methodical. We do a, a pretty, it's, it's a fairly quick, but it's a very thorough briefing prior to actually starting the hoist and, some of the things that we cover in that briefing include, you know, basically like the wind dynamics, the direction, the speed, uh, the target approach and departure to the area. What type of hoist are we going to do? Are we going to um, do either a static or a dynamic? And for people new to the to the industry, static is essentially when you fly over the top of the target and stop the helicopter and hover and then lower the cable down. Um, and then likewise, when you bring it back up and then dynamic is when you're actually flying uh, fairly slow, but flying to the target in forward flight and lowering uh, or raising the cable uh, in flight, kind of some different uh, benefits and and um, uh, you know for each of those techniques that we won't we won't get into right now. But essentially, uh, we do a thorough briefing of what we're going to do, and then any potential emergencies, what we could expect, and then what the crew is going to do to respond to those emergencies. And then uh, essentially, another thing that's really important is everybody we have everybody identify their cable cut switch uh, in the event of some of those emergencies in case the cable has to be cut. So pretty thorough checklist that's run. Um, and once you've done this enough, it goes fairly quickly. Uh, and then as far as the pilot goes, it's really flying a nice, stable, slow, ideally flat approach to over the top of the target. And once you're over the top of it on station, just prior to getting there, the hoist operator is going to have to pick up what we call the con or giving you conning commands because eventually you're going to be over the top of it. You won't be able to see it. So once you lose sight of the target, you announce that to the hoist operator and then the hoist operator will call you in over the target and eventually have you stop. Uh, Occasionally make minor adjustments. And then once you're in position, they will commence the hoist. And for the pilot, the biggest thing is having good reference points daytime and then especially at night on goggles. So it's a common for us during that briefing, one of those options or uh, things that we talk about is the reference points for the pilot. And if they're not good, we make sure that we tell the hoist operator, you know, hey, I, I do have a reference point, but, you know, it's fairly open. Maybe we're going to be a little bit higher than normal. So I need you to let me know sooner if the aircraft is moving because I may not pick up on it as quickly as I normally would if I was right next to something, you know, that was maybe 100 feet away, a nice rock outcropping or a tree top or something that would give you a very good indication of small movements that the helicopter is making. So on the pilot side, really um, biggest thing once you get in there is, is just having a reference point and then using that to make the helicopter stay as stable as possible so that the hoist can be conducted. And then 
obviously uh, flying very smoothly helps considerably, especially when you're making very small adjustments once you get in close to the target. And that's uh, essentially kind of the pilot's point of view from from just a single hoist up. And Dave, do you have any tips in terms of, uh, I don't know, like task loading or detachment? Because often, especially if you're the, you know, the pilot in command flying, you are busy hovering, you're busy monitoring what's happening in the background, but you still have to be the pilot in command in terms of the aircraft safety. Because often as you get conned in, especially when you're overhead, the, the air crewman takes over a huge amount of responsibility for, for the aircraft operations. But do you have any approaches or, or when you're sitting there in the hover, how do you sort of just keep a, a little bit of spare capacity to to keep doing that pilot command type things? Yeah, that's a good point. Essentially, you know, the pilot command is in charge of the aircraft and, and the entire operation. So you do have that uh, added responsibility on your shoulders. So really, I think a lot of that initially comes down to the decision-making you know, it's it's kind of funny. We joke about it sometimes with the rescuers, but those folks, they're a lot of times very focused on, hey, we need to get in there. We need to get this person out. You know, they're they're injured. They're critical. So uh, not that they would, you know, be willing to take extra risk, but that's that's the focus of their job. Their job is to get in there and treat people and get them out. And occasionally, you know, we have, we'll always have these discussions during these briefings, um, but you know, it's common for the pilot to finally just kind of get everybody's input and then say, hey, you know what, I'm going to call it. We're, we're not going to be able to do this, or uh, we're not going to be able to fly necessarily deep into a canyon and put people in. We might have to put them just outside of the canyon, and they're going to have to hike a mile to get to the victim. So yeah, the final decision always comes to the pilot. And as far as trying to make sure you keep that same um, you know, that mindset and don't get overloaded because you're actually holding the hoist, you know, holding the hover while the hoist is going on. Really, you have to rely on the crew. Uh, and there's there's a huge benefit to having a second pilot up there, especially one that's qualified to hoist, because they're not as task saturated and they can help monitor, you know, systems and um, you know, call out power uh, settings and um, just basically monitor the operation and give the PIC the information that that they need to make some of those decisions up to and including, you know, potentially even just aborting the hoist, bringing the people back up and, and going around and trying it again. So really it all comes down to good CRM, I would say. Okay, Robin, in terms of setting the aircraft up in the in the back of the air, of the aircraft, what are some of the things? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think, you know, the aircraft safety procedures side of things, for me as a, as a rear crew member, that starts, that starts the minute we walk out to the aircraft. I, I you know, just like a flight attendant on the on the local Qantas flight or whatever, I'm I'm kind of responsible for everything that happens behind the pilot seat. So, I've got crew that may be trained, that may be untrained if they're people being rescued or other other like uh, non non air crew rated passengers. So, I need to make sure that the the, the absolute basics covered. You know, right down to seatbelts and fire extinguishers and and communications and and that sort of stuff. And that that's kind of where it all begins uh, from my side of things. We need to make sure that all the people in the back have received a good briefing. And really understand what their what their role is if they have a role and uh, and how they're going to evacuate if we have a problem. Ultimately, you know that that kind of does come down to me if, if we do have a problem to to get those people out and keep them safe and that sort of thing. So we want to make sure we're giving them a a really good briefing from a passenger side of things, and then we need to be able to keep control of that cabin throughout the whatever we're doing as well the mission, you know, whatever might come up as as we make our way along it. I think. A lot of people uh, underestimate how important the the synergy and the, uh, the the relationship between the pilot and the hoist operator can be. I think to kind of shoot ourselves in the foot here, hoisting is actually fairly easy until something goes outside of, of the standard, if you will. It really, I mean, a lot of people think it's just hoist goes up, hoist goes down, and, and that's the end of it. But 
to be able to understand that when we have a crosswind and you've got a left skid low aircraft that it does tend to you know lean more into that wind you then lose controllability you're more likely to to run out of, of cyclic things little little things like that that you don't think about and these are all the stuff that, that, that's going on between the pilot and the hoist operator and the more that the hoist operator in the back can understand when we talk about single engine performance or our, our breakaway or our, our escape route from the scene or anything like that, the more understanding the hoist operator has of how the aircraft functions, the, the, the actual safety procedures in the event of, of a malfunction or a problem, it just takes a lot of load away from the pilot. The last thing the pilot wants to be doing, and I'm sure Dave would agree, is worrying about whether his guy in the back really truly understands uh, the procedures or whether he's just read it out of the manual. And uh, and is following following the book. So uh, having a deep understanding is is really important, I think, from the safety procedure side of things. And then again, we need to know between the pilot and the host operator what each other is going to do in the event of in the event that we do have a problem with something, which I think we'll get into in a little bit with the specific emergencies as well. All right. Well, how about you talk us through if that works in in this method? And Rob, in terms of Dave was talking about you're coming in on approach. And at some point, the you know the pilot's going to say you know they're, they're losing visual. And the the aircrewman in the back is going to start talking the aircraft in. Can you just give us yeah. just a walkthrough of how from from there to lowering the sling to bring the sling back up? What are the sort of key sort of steps that you that you go through? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it is is obviously control. You need to be controlling the height of the aircraft as it's went on its way in. So you, you need to make sure that the aircraft is, is going to be well clear of obstructions. You know, we're we're above the canopy. We're above any any hazards that we're flying over, but not so low that we're going to blow trees down or blow debris out of trees and things like that. So it's managing, it's, it's managing a height. We try and come in fairly flat uh, with our altitude. We don't want to try and be climbing or descending too much as we're approaching a target. It's just, it's one extra thing that the pilot has to be dealing with that we don't necessarily have to be. There will obviously be situations that are outside of that, but I'm calling his height as he comes in, whether his height's good. Uh, we're going to be controlling speed. So either speed's going to be good. You can increase your speed if we're coming in really slowly or most often it's uh, you need to reduce your speed because we're coming in too fast. A lot of guys, especially early on when they're first in training or had just jumped into a new program, will usually approach way too fast and, and they end up getting tough, saturated as the hoist operator in the back. And we're calling numbers as, as you approach. And we always say, you know, there's, it's kind of an arbitrary number, really. The, you know, you, you start back, you give yourself enough time so you might start at, at a 100 call. And as long as 50 is halfway to the target, it doesn't matter if you're a kilometre away or you're five metres away. As long as the numbers match your cadence and the way that you're using those words to, to call the pilot in, you're basically painting a picture for the pilot that he can't see. So, you know, it's forward 100, forward 50, forward 30, forward 20. And as you're calling those numbers, and it gets right down to three, two, one, and you're talking about feet to inches at, at that point. And we're making corrections to the line on the way in as soon as that pilot loses loses the side of the target. So we're, we're correcting them early, whether it be left or right on that line, because it's much, much easier to, you know, instead of going forward 100 and then right 100, we can go forward and right 150 trigonometry. And uh, and you end up, roughly speaking, where, where you need to be. But you're not, you're not making big movements and unsettling the load. You want to make small corrections all the way in and, and really try and be ahead of the game. Uh, and, and that just comes down to practice and, and doing quite a bit of it rather than trying to make big big movements to correct things late. Okay, and once we're overhead, well, actually, before we do that, how many hoists these days are uh, internal versus external? And you just want to talk about, uh, you know, you've got V and E for, for cracking the door open and how that sort of interaction works on, on approach uh, in terms of airspeed. 
Yeah, for sure. So I think the, to answer your original question, I think there are still some internal hosts out there, especially older legacy machines. In the US, a lot of guys are still running all the uh, left military uh, Hueys and variants of Bell Medium, and, and they do have a lot of internal hosts. But the way that it's going is is really starting to drive down the road of, uh, of the external hoist. There is a couple of manufacturers, but most of them are still providing an, an external option uh, for the aircraft. So we are limited, like you say, by by airspeed for for opening doors. Really, for us, there's no there's no huge benefit in opening the doors anywhere above sixty knots. Uh, it just becomes loud and windy, and and we want to try and reduce that speed down, uh, generally below sixty knots, before we can really be deploying any cable anyway. So we usually use sixty knots as, as our number, and then we can start going to work beyond that. It's something I didn't pick up for for ages, but. Often, so you've got the you know the sling down, and the sling you know is, or the strop is reasonably light on the end of this cable, and it's going to be affected by rotor wash. But what I picked up later and talking to a couple of guys is when they'd say you know come left one or come left two, it wasn't so much they were trying to move the aircraft; they were trying just to get a, a slight downwash difference to actually move the sling across to where they wanted the sling to go. So can you just talk about how you sort of steer the the, the strop on the way down. Yeah, you certainly can do for sure. I mean, it's a bit of an art form for sure. And every, like I say, every aircraft is different. So it really is becoming familiar with the aircraft. And that's just why it's so important to have guys that have either seen different aircraft or have had a, a wide range of, of skill set to, to really draw upon when you need it. But, uh, yeah, you can, you can certainly, you are, you're flying the hook. You're not, you're not necessarily flying the aircraft. You know, if you are out hoisting to a boat that's trucking along at, at 20 knots and you've got a headwind, the hook may be 20, 30 feet behind the aircraft. So you're not necessarily flying the aircraft to where it needs to be. You're effectively flying the hook. And Dave spoke a little earlier about the dynamic hoisting, and I think we'll probably get into that a little later on as well. But just understanding where that rotor wash is, and ideally you want to try and keep the hook or the load away from that rotor wash in the first place. It's a prevention rather than cure type situation. But yeah, I mean... You'll notice when you're particularly when you're low and that that downwash from the aircraft is making it all the way to the ground and it's still quite uh, significant when it makes it to the ground, you'll actually see a bit of a bubble in the air. You picture a column of rotor wash coming directly down and then spreading out in all directions when it gets to the ground and you'll see the hook come down. It's nice and light if you don't have any weight or something that catches a lot of uh, airflow on the bottom of it and then it will actually push out to the side and you do, you have to kind of maneuver the aircraft around a little bit. It's, it's kind of hard to explain just with your voice, but you do have to maneuver the aircraft around a little bit to either try and get it to catch a different spot or sometimes it's just a patience thing. You just actually have to wait and, and let it settle itself out in, in its own time. No, no amount of movement's really going to help too much. Is now a good point to talk about um, like control checks and the actual pickup and things like that, or should we talk about that later on? Uh, no, we certainly can if uh, if, that, if that's what we want to talk about, for sure, yeah. Do you want me to get straight into that? Yeah, if you just just keep walking through, because again, you know, I'm thinking uh, someone who's flying R44s has only ever seen pictures of a, you know, of a, a rescue helicopter with a hoist down, we'll never ever heard the the kind of patter or the process that you go through. So if we want to take it, we've pulled up to the to the hover, we've, uh, we're over the top, we're, we're dropping the, the hoist down to pick up the, the survivor. What are the what are we hearing and um, and what are you doing in the back? Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, so as far as um, like the the actual kind of the communication between the pilot and hoist operator, like Rob had said, you know, it's kind of a constant banter. And then once we get over the top of the target, they'll make minor adjustments, very fine adjustments, and then they'll confirm that you know we're basically over the target and we're stable. The biggest thing is you want to make sure, like you said, that you have the power and the controllability to do that before you actually commit 
to starting hoist, uh, particularly with the dynamic hoisting. And there's been a little bit of a, it's interesting, there's been debates over the years as to, you know, what's better between the two techniques. And again, we can talk about that, you know, after this, but essentially the biggest thing that we preach, especially for the pilots, is that you have to make sure you have the power and the controllability before you go into an area to start the hoist. You also want to 100% make sure that you have a way to uh, execute a go around. And, you know, there's times at lower altitudes and good conditions and powerful helicopters where you just know that there's not going to be any issues with power. Uh, you're not going to have any controllability. And for folks that don't do this type of flying, when we talk about that, it's it's not only being able to keep the aircraft nice and stable over the top of a target, but in many cases, it's actually uh, running over out of tail rotor authority. And, you know, my own experience flying Hueys that, you know, we've done altitudes well over in the, you know, the 10, 11,000 foot range for years. And the limitations in the Huey typically wasn't power. It was actually running out of left pedal uh, for tail rotor authority because the engine could produce the power. The tail rotor eventually just reaches a point where it can't keep up. So you want to know that before you go in there and commit to actually putting a live person on the hook. So what typically the pilots will do is either do a, a dry run or, or a rehearsal. And to do that, what we normally do is set up in that vicinity, um, in the same direction that the aircraft is going to be pointed. And that's very critical because the wind direction has to be the same. So it doesn't do you any good to do that, that power and controllability check pointed into the wind and then go in over the target and have the nose pointed 30 degrees to the right because the power and controllability will be different. So you need to confirm that before you commit to the hoist. You know, occasionally if the conditions are a little gusty or you don't have an excessive margin for power and controllability, we will do a static hoist. We'll get over the top of the target. The hoist operator will con you over there, and then the pilot will want to actually just wait there momentarily and ensure that, okay, I do have the power required, I do have the pedal, or I do have the ability to keep us directly over the target and uh, then commence the hoist. And there is a lot of communication between the hoist operator and the pilot that goes in prior to starting that approach and then getting over the top. And then as far as the actual uh, communication from the hoist operator, uh, I'll let Rob speak on that. But uh, again, there's the whole process has a lot of CRM. So Rob, you want to touch on that? Yeah, for sure. So I think, uh, you know, like as, as Mick's alluded to, and as we said earlier, it, it's almost a constant flow of information. Once the pilot loses sight of that target, really, you have to be, you have to keep him on top of it. And, and newer guys will get a reminder fairly quickly that they're not because they'll hear from the front end, hey, what's going on back there? You know, that, that's the cue that you're probably not speaking enough. But yeah, as soon as we arrive on, on site overhead and we're actually going to start the hoist, I absolutely want to be letting the pilot know once the hook is below the skid. Uh, now, you know, now we're interested in entering a, a critical kind of phase of the operation. We also really try and, and let the pilot know once we are what we would call committed. So the hoist cable and hook has actually entered the obstructions. We're into the canopy of the trees. We're below the cliff level. We're, you know, in amongst masts on boats, that sort of thing. So we want the pilot to know, hey, if we do have a problem right now, we need to stay here if at all possible. Either that or we're going to cut the cable. So that's a really critical one to let them know as well is, is once we're actually into those obstructions with the hoist or the load. And then again, once they're approaching the ground, if, if it's an empty hook, we're going to let them know, hey, you know, hooks hooks almost at the ground, hooks approaching the deck, three, two, one, hooks in the deck. Once the guys on the ground that have got the hook in hand, that's another really, really critical one because, again, if they're working with the hook, they might be hooked up, they might not be hooked up. They're right in that really critical phase for us. And what we don't want to do is have a problem with the aircraft, think we're clear to start flying away because we've got a problem, 
and there's a guy uh, attached to the end of it at that point. So uh, that that's a really critical phase for us. We're training our guys on the ground to be really, really quick with those connections so that we're not sitting in that no man's land for too long. And then we'll make uh, corrections to the position as, as we're in that spot as well. If we've drifted a little bit, we want to make sure we're dead center over the target when we're picking it up because down in a, in a tight hole in the trees or on the, on the aft deck of a ship or something like that, there really is very limited space to work. And the last thing we want to do is, uh, is swing a guy into an obstruction, either hurt him or, or get the cable snagged up in something. And then, as Dave spoke about earlier, as we start to take that weight with the with either the aircraft or the hoist, we have both options. If if it is a fairly technical spot and we're concerned about controllability, I mean, we spoke about it as well. You, you think about the guys that are out there flying around in, in R22s and, and those sort of size machines, uh, making your G2 as well. You might only be carrying a payload of four, five, six hundred pounds or, you know, two, three hundred kilos, whereas we have the ability with the hoist to put 600 pounds or almost 300 kilograms uh, on the hoist hook. And it's right at the very, very outer edge of, uh, of the aircraft. So it affects center of gravity is, is massive. We're basically picking up the entire payload of a, of a training aircraft uh, on the outside of the aircraft of ours. So it can affect controllability quite a bit. And we want to make sure that uh, when we take that load, that we are still within our limits for, for cyclic and, and things like that. So, We'll take the load at that point. Uh, either the aircraft will just really slowly pick up and we can ask the pilot, hey, are you happy to continue if he's the one taking the load? More often than not, we know in advance that we're going to be okay and uh, and we're happy for the hoist just to take the load uh, itself. It means the pilot can maintain a better hover reference. We don't need to be changing that position. He has to reset his, uh, recalibrate his hover references. So we kind of stay in that one position and, uh, and let the hoist do the pick. And then once that load's actually fully on the on the cable, We'll just pause or slowly retract very, very briefly and just confirm with the pilot again that his power and controllability are good. And then at that point, it's basically a matter of keeping the aircraft positioned over target uh, using using voice commands and getting those guys up and, and clear of the canopy again as, as quickly as possible. Because then again, we talked about committed going into those obstructions, into those trees. The pilot is, is kind of hanging on that information next is, hey, when are we clear of those obstructions? Because if I have an engine failure or something else goes wrong at that point the pilot's really comfortable knowing that if we need to we can depart the thing right away excellent i guess it comes back to that, that dynamic approach as well because obviously yeah you want to minimize the time you're seeing in the hover so you as a pilot you sort of see yeah. you're waiting for that that clearance to actually start moving and getting some airflow going again totally absolutely and i mean it's not always it's not that the aircraft can't necessarily do it it's just that you're working it harder than it needs to be and you know, we, we, we'll get into a little bit of the swing and the spin and, and managing those risks later on. But we spoke a little bit about the downwash and the way it affects the empty hook. Uh, you know, even as, as you're in the hover, that, that downwash beneath you, that affects the load. It affects your, your stretcher if you're hoisting a, a litter or a stretcher or a basket or something. And by actually making an approach with a little bit of forward airspeed, you picture the rotor wash column instead of being vertically down beneath you. It actually starts to... Uh, rotate and kind of be directed more aft behind you whereas the load because it's a heavy weighted object will actually still hang directly beneath the aircraft or close to and it's clear of that rotor wash and it's just totally unaffected by it so even if we're going into a target that's going to be a you know a fairly restricted hole in the trees or something like that we'll actually uh, approach the target in that dynamic profile as much as we can uh, with the load beneath the aircraft we'll get overhead targets and we've already paid out, you know, that 30, 50 feet of cable to, to get them kind of clear of that really severe rotor wash zone. 
And then once we arrive on target, they're clear of that. The rotor wash catches up to us again at that point, but it's must it's much uh, less severe because the load is already below and clear of that really really turbulent air, and then we can continue down into the trees with less with less impact from rotor wash, which is helpful for everyone. <clears throat> the next point we've got there is uh, fall protection and restraint requirements. Uh, so we want to tackle that one. Yeah, I, I can keep going here for sure if, if we're talking about that. And I think the big thing here is every single aircraft is different. And, you know, even within you go to Airbus tomorrow and you go buy two brand new H145s and they're going to come delivered more than likely with different different cabin configurations and different hard points and, and things like that. So, you know, keeping it simple is, is really, really important. And you do want to have lots of connection points for your guys to, to keep themselves safe inside the cabin of the aircraft. But at the same time, you need to provide enough uh, redundancy in the system that you're not relying on necessarily one point for the whole for the whole aircraft to to keep guys restrained and safe. If you've got multiple guys, you want multiple hard points. If you're moving around the cabin, having options within that cabin is is nice, and you want to keep a nice clean workspace. And anyone that works in rope access or anything like that knows well that it's all about housekeeping. And what you don't want to do is have lanyards across an open doorway, and then guys are tripping or stepping over uh, you know hazards to, to get in and out of the aircraft. That's that to us is a cabin that hasn't really been thought out all that well from a rigging standpoint. So we spend a lot of time in, in the early stages. If we have a client who's looking to, to equip an aircraft, we spend a lot of time in the early stages just making sure that it, it's rigged as good as it can be. And I'm a bit of an OCD type guy, so I try and get stuff down to the nth degree of, of perfection. But there is certainly uh, something you want to do with regard to load sharing and, and some redundancy and stuff like that that can make your life much, much easier down the road for sure. I guess what we're talking there, though, the, the primary thing is you're either in a seatbelt or you're hooked onto the floor or the roof or something like that. So at any particular time, you've always got a restraint and you're never sort of floating between the two. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then like that, that would be that would that is a major major issue. If you have someone in the aircraft with the door open that isn't restrained by any means, we we have a really serious problem at that point. So one, like you alluded to there, one one method of restraint is the bare minimum. And then as much as possible, we actually try and, especially if you're going to be transitioning from one one position in the aircraft to another, for example, from your seat to the doorway of the aircraft to the hoist to, to be hoisted, we want to as much as possible keep guys on, on multiple forms of restraint and, and on one for as little as possible of that time. So you're on, you're on your seatbelt and you're on a some kind of retractable lanyard in, or a, some kind of lanyard inside the aircraft. You're on both together. Then you undo your seatbelt. Then you move to the doorway. Then we put you on the hoist hooks. You're on two again while we make that transition outside of, of the cabin. So, again, it's just redundancy in those critical phases. And, Dave, in terms of moving into SAR mission planning, what what are the – I don't know, how do you guys set up the scenarios to, to sort of practice that decision-making as you go through that? Yeah, so as far as uh, setting up scenarios, yeah, we commonly will will tailor one to the needs of of our customer in the area that they operate and the, the type of rescue that they would typically um, be expected to conduct. But a lot of the things initially, when you receive information for a type of a call or a job where you're going to actually launch and go try to recover somebody, um, a lot of the considerations aren't that much different initially as if you just jumped in an R22 and went on a, on a, a normal flight. You know, obviously, you want to consider weight and balance, um, fuel considerations for endurance. Uh, the weather is a big one. So that stuff falls for the most part the same. Some of the weight and balance can get a little bit tricky, though, because you need to take into consideration, like Rob said earlier, if you're going to pick up somebody that's fairly heavy, and especially if you're going to take a rescuer and a victim at the same time, 
some aircraft have a lot more issues with lateral CG. So you really don't want to find that out when you're in the middle of the hoist. You know, you run out of left or right cyclic, the aircraft is drifting and, and you can't stop it. So that's a big part of it. Another big thing is just the mission type versus the crew experience. We really hammer that home to evaluate what is it that we're being asked to do and are we qualified to do it. So a lot of times that's exactly where you start before you even get to the to the mission planning because if you don't have the experience to do it or you can't call on a crew that does have the experience, then you need to either not go or you need to at least maybe look at some other options before you launch. In addition to uh, kind of those those factors, once you know what you're going to do, what you're going to be expected to do, you're qualified to do it. Uh, you've kind of gone through all the weight and balance, performance, fuel, weather, and all those things. We strongly recommend doing uh, some sort of a risk assessment prior to launch. And there's a lot of templates out there that uh, that can be provided from from various sources on, on different websites and organizations. But essentially, you should do some sort of a pre-flight risk assessment. And just quickly to run through how that works, you break up the flight into areas of risk. So for an example, one would be human factors. And a common one with that is if say you, you know, make you work to an eight hour shift, you know, just normally flying and then you're on call and then you got called back four or five hours later into the middle of your sleep cycle. So that's going to essentially make the the operation a little bit more risky. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but fatigue is going to be something that has to be considered. So there's areas in that risk assessment that will be assigned a score. The riskier it is, the higher the score or the higher the number. And uh, you essentially add up that score and then it'll put you into a category of just for simplistic terms, you know, it's either going to be green where you would go, yellow to where it needs some extra consideration or approval, or red to where you won't go unless you can mitigate some of the additional risk. You know, it could be uh, fatigue, it could be, you know, the weather, thunderstorms, low ceilings, poor visibility. Um, it could be the locations at a higher altitude than you normally operate. So things of that nature. And then once you go through that process, and it doesn't take long if you've established it, then uh, the last thing that, that we really preach is just doing operational risk management once you take off. A lot of times I think we get wrapped into just thinking, okay, we've done our due diligence, we've assessed the risk, and then we launch, and then we don't think about it anymore after that. Well, it's essentially something that should be kind of a continuous process. So if you get into the area of operation and some things have changed, you need to always be constantly reevaluating the risk of what you're doing. So if you get there and maybe you were told the victim was 120 pounds and then it turns out they're 300 pounds, that changes everything. So you need to reevaluate that. And it doesn't mean again that you can't do it, but you might change what you do. And you have to have a quick discussion amongst the crew as to how you're going to accomplish that safely. And uh, that process continues all the way back uh, until the mission is complete. Again, I'm just conscious of the time there, so I'm going to keep rolling through our points here and cover as much as you can. So I won't dive any deeper on that, but uh, there is a – I don't mean to brush over that uh, lightly because there's heaps of stuff there. <laughs> but let's let's roll into emergency procedures and what are some of the things that can go wrong in uh, in doing a hoist? Yeah, so Rob, yeah, you want to maybe talk about – yeah, go ahead talk about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're, we're really cognizant, I think, and, and again, this is one of those things where if you set yourself up for success from the beginning – you reduce a lot of that that risk by, as Dave said, getting yourself into a position where you know the variables, you know what might happen, and you have a plan for that problem. Things that you don't expect to happen can quickly become an emergency, but if you brief them and plan for them, you know either the, the severity of, of the situation is drastically reduced or they're not actually an emergency at all if, uh, if you know what the plan is uh, at any point during that. So 
We have a bit of a list here. I mean, the obvious one that everyone kind of thinks of first is is obviously an engine failure, and in a single engine aircraft, that's a that's a fairly serious situation at, at any point. Really, you're you are going to go to ground, and you're going to have to find a way to to get there. It's, it's basically a damage control type situation. If we've got an empty hook beneath it and no one's on on the line, then obviously we're just going to cut the cable and and just the the pilot's going to fly the aircraft. He's going to try and get it to the ground by whatever rotation or what, however whatever option he's got available to him as best that he can. Once we get up into twin engine aircraft, obviously the options become much much greater. If we have that one engine in operative capability, then then the answer is fairly simple. We do nothing. We just continue doing what we're doing, and we either get the guy to the ground or we get him clear of those obstructions as quickly as possible. And the pilot does what he does. It, it's just basically an aircraft at that point that suffered an engine failure and we fly away. We have that OEI capability. If we don't, we might have the ability to, again, kind of like the single engine thing, either fly away immediately if the guy is, is not in amongst the destruction or if we've got enough time just to get the guy to the ground or get him up and clear of those obstructions, then we can commence a flyaway operation and put a hoist operator in the back and the pilot. It's really key that both of us know exactly what that plan is going to look like beforehand so we can so we can plan appropriately. For us, really, that, that really is truly one of the only emergency procedures. Things like tail rotor failures and, and things like that we can get right into, but you would have had to have usually run into something or something would have usually happened in the hoist to, to get yourself into that position. So I think to stick with more of the hoist-related emergency procedures, there's been lots of uh, lots of online chat lately about things like spinning and taglines and, and stuff like that. But ultimately, again, prevention is better than cure. Using equipment like a tagline appropriately, using dynamic uh, hoisting profiles when appropriate, uh, can mitigate a lot of those spin issues. Um, so Rob, again, someone coming with, with no background, can you just walk through what a, a tagline is and what it does? Absolutely. So a tagline is just basically a, a rope that's been, you know, gets stored in a bag and is, is deployed uh, with the, either a stretcher or a basket or whatever rescue device you're using. I uh, usually not used too much for for just people on the ground. We can, but it's less likely to be used for that purpose. It's mostly as a spin reduction tool um, and just a controllability thing. So the rope is connected to, to the, the rescue device, whether it be a stretcher or, or a basket or whatever. And yeah, as long as uh, as long as there is some actual some angle in that tagline and it's connected between the rescue device and a, a rescue attendant on the ground as it's being raised or lowered, then that rescue attendant on the ground can maintain some tension uh, using that rope uh, to the to the rescue device and and keep control of it. It'll stop it from spinning. It'll stop it from swinging around too much. And we actually have the ability to, where we can't get the aircraft directly overhead necessarily, so we can slowly uh, pick the load up off the ground. And as it returns to center to plumb itself under the aircraft, we can use that tagline to, to slowly uh, pay out some rope and slowly move that uh, move that piece of rescue equipment underneath the aircraft in a controlled fashion rather than just letting it swing. So, yeah, it, it's a very, very useful tool uh, when used properly. But, again, we don't have time, I'm sure, to get into everything today, but there's a whole podcast just on taglines. But, uh, yeah, there, there's certainly a right way and a wrong way to use them. And as we've seen online, I'm sure we can get ourselves into trouble fairly quickly if, if not used correctly. I always used to like the part of the brief for, uh, back on engine failures uh, in the Huey and that is uh, obviously, you know, they, we'll call cut and we'll, uh, we'll cut, the, cut the load at a, at a height to minimise uh, injury to the, to the survivors. 
But then I always, yeah. always used to feel, you know, for the, the guys in the back, because obviously in the front, you're sitting in a chair with all your, your, your crash absorption and everything. Uh, for the guys in the back, you've only got a couple of seconds to try and brace yourself best as you can for the actual, for the touchdown. Yeah, it's less than ideal for sure. And, you know, it, it's really, that is really one of the hardest conversations that we have during the training is, is there, there just has to be a, a bit of a greatest good for greatest need type mentality. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it, there, you can be in positions, especially in the rescue world where, you know, you, you may have to be faced with a decision and it, it, we try and mitigate that as much as we absolutely can. And, you know, for a lot of operations, we just simply wouldn't put ourselves in that position to start with. But it's really, really important for the guys to know exactly what they're in for because, yeah, there, there can be some unpleasant situations depending on, on what you're getting yourself into. Okay. What's the next sort of thing in terms of what can go wrong? Yeah. So I think uh, in terms of the spinning, just to finish up on that one, the if it's happened and, it, and it's something you've, you've got and you have to deal with that, at that point, a lot of the time, just getting some airspeed. So actually flying immediately. And, and it, does, it shouldn't be an expedite. It shouldn't be a... Uh, a delayed reaction as long as you as soon as you can you want to get that load up clear of the obstructions and commence forward flight and then everything's going to stabilize out uh quickly and so that that's the preference for sure and if, if you don't have the ability to do that and you really need to take a good hard look at how you're going to how you're going to accomplish that mission safely again that's a long conversation but there are a few ways to, to definitely mitigate that risk and then in terms of what we would call malfunctions with the aircraft if the aircraft's flying normally if there's no actual problems with the aircraft a lot of the other things that we do is we don't consider them emergencies because there is no real rush. There's no no life and death situation. We can often, well, we rarely would see, but it can happen where the, the hoist cable actually gets snagged up in something, so it'll get tangled in, in something. A lot of the time, I think this would be seen uh, with an empty hook. When there's loaded on it and, it and the cable's tight under tension, it's less likely to wrap around things. And you've got a, a smart intelligent rescue specialist on the bottom of the line that can keep yourself clear of those obstructions as best they can. So more often than not, I think you're likely to see this when you're, you've got an empty hook. But again, if the aircraft is able to maintain a position, you can either work through that situation to try and free it, or uh, you do have the ability to cut the cable. But again, there's, there's less likely that someone's going to be on, uh, on the hook at that time. And then really the other one, you can either have a, a runaway of the hoist where it's basically doing something that you don't expect it to be doing, whether it's paying out cable or bringing in cable. We control that a little bit. We can do what's called a controllability check on the hoist. So as it's approaching the skid or as it's approaching the ground, we'll just stop quickly in advance, 10, 15 feet, something like that. And if you think it's going to be a concern or you, you don't want to be putting that person down hard into some technical terrain, you can do that check in advance, and then if you do find that you have a problem, you have time before touchdown to actually uh, remove power to isolate that power from the hoist so that it, the hoist stops, and then it becomes, uh, you know, you're effectively a long-line operation at that point. You still have complete control of the load in the aircraft. You just don't have control of the hoist anymore. So you may need to actually climb the aircraft up and out of that spot and transition to a nice clear area to, to get the person down in. But for us, we have the ability to move the aircraft. We're under control. No one's hurt. Nothing's broken. So, other than the hoist, so we can we can make that work. It's not the end of the world. And likewise with a stoppage. So if the hoist just stops due to you know a snagged ca- cable inside the drum of the hoist, the actual mechanism of the hoist is uh, miswrapped. We call it, or, or some kind of other malfunction has happened inside the hoist unit itself, inside the mechanism. Again, we basically won't try and fix too much of that in flight. Uh, we already have one problem, so we don't want to make it worse by trying to do troubleshooting too much, unless it's something really obvious, in which case it's kind of the same as the runaway in that we we just revert back to a short haul or a long line type operation where we just turn the power off to the hoist, totally isolate it, and, uh, and we'll transition that person down to the clearance and area and do the troubleshooting without uh, a human on the end of it. 
We haven't talked about... Yeah, the main ones. I was going to say, we, we've talked about cutting, but we haven't actually talked about how the cable gets cut. So, Dave, do you want to just talk about yeah. what's in the aircraft in terms of, you know, electrics and, and, and how the cable actually gets cut? Yeah, so there's essentially, you know, there's two methods to, to cut the cable, and, and the the primary means would be with, um, there's a little cartridge in there, essentially, it's a little explosive cartridge that would fire a, a cutting device uh, internally inside of the hoist, and depending on the aircraft, there may be uh, more than one actual switch to fire that, that device, and the hoist operator typically has one on the hoist or on the pendant or the hand controller. That's pretty common for in larger helicopters, both the pilot and the co-pilot to have uh, individual switches to, to fire that cable cutting device. It's also common, like in the Huey, for example, there was just one on the center console and it's a switch with a piece of safety wire over it. So uh, basically it's an electrical the, the switch that fires a small uh, similar to like a primer type of a very small explosive type device that uh, drives a blade into the cable and actually shears it. And the other method would be just manually with a pair of either something that looks similar to a set of bolt cutters, but there's also, also some uh, pretty interesting aftermarket devices that allow the hoist operator to actually reach out with something that looks similar to like a, a small hand axe and then pull towards them and shear the cable that way. So really, it comes down to either internally within the aircraft or manually with a set of you know, cutting type devices from uh, from the hoist operator in the back. Rob, have you ever actually physically tried to cut the cable on the ground and things like that? Like, how hard is it to cut the cable? I think Dave, the two the two manual. We've never actually cut one, obviously electronically using the using the explosive squib. But uh, thank God. But yeah, we've, we've played around a lot with the, the manual cable cutting. I think anyone that operates the hoist should get an old piece of cable and use their cable cutting device. Dave mentioned two options. There's the, the style that kind of looks like a set of bolt cutters. And, and like you said, that, that's really a two-handed thing. And that cable has to go within the jaws of those bolt cutters, which in flight is a real challenge, especially if you encountered some kind of malfunction or problem. You know, really, I, I wouldn't want to be in a position where I have to do that. So the, the second option is, I believe it's by a company called Zephyr, and they make a, a single-handed device, which basically is it's a big, long pole with a hook on the end of it. And just by making a, a sweeping horizontal motion, you can actually catch that cable, and it collects the cable from a much wider area and kind of funnels it into that cutting jaw. And then once it's in that position, you can kind of rest the end of the pole in against your, your rib cage or in your hips and pull back single-handedly on one handle, and it'll actually cut the cable using a like a, a mechanical advantage system and yeah we've played around with both options and we have the we have the latter in our aircraft because of the just the, the ease of use compared to the manual two-handed bolt cutter mechanism and that's much better to use that mechanism if you have a problem with the, the hoist or a snagged cable or something like that to to cut the cable manually is, is to, to fix that after the fact it's just a replacement cable as long as there's no other issues if it's just a snagged cable or a damaged cable then you can just cut it manually and the rectifying action is just to replace the cable. Whereas if you fire that explosive squib, I mean, that hoist is unserviceable. It's coming off the aircraft. It's going back to the manufacturer and you're looking at tens and tens and tens and thousands of dollars for, for repair. So you have a preference for story as long as there's no safety issues uh, surrounding cutting the cable manually. If it's, if it's something that has to happen quickly, then electronically is always the go. We're not going to compromise safety. But uh, yeah, there are cases where manually is certainly the preferred option. Is there any is there any equipment out there we can carry a second hook and and reconnect it on the wire 
after it's been cut or, or that's that's it? Once that wire yeah. is done, it's it's done. So there is a, a device as well. It's called a quick splice. There's a couple of different, different versions of that piece of equipment. But yeah, they, they basically involve providing you have to have cut the cable manually. If you cut it uh, electrically using that squib, it, it's done. But the host, the host is toast. There basically is no... That, that particular hoist will not be will not be doing anything again until it's repaired. But yeah, we do have the ability to cut the cable manually and then attach what's known as a quick splice to the end of that cable. It is effectively a replacement hook. And there are a couple of really, really slick designs for that out now that, that are, again, you really shouldn't be going out and doing hoisting operations without one of those sitting in your cabin somewhere there, a few hundred bucks. And it, it's when you need it, it'll be the best money you've ever spent for sure. They're, they're the same hook that you have on the regular, uh, the regular hoist before you had to cut it. And it, it takes 10 seconds to attach, and, and you can basically use the hoist as before. Obviously, you've shortened the cable by potentially a significant amount, so you need to be aware that you only have a limited amount of cable left on the hoist to use. And then some of those functions, the hoist basically knows how much cable is beneath it. It has a, a, a payout meterage, and you know how much cable is paid out at any point. So if you cut the cable at, at half of its length, it still thinks that the entire length of the cable is deployed, even though half of it is actually there. So you're going to see uh, that hook arrive at the aircraft while the number is still reading higher than what it is. And you don't have the the ability to slow down the, the speed of the hoist as much, or you don't have the ability to slow down the speed of the hoist as it approaches the skid uh, automatically, like the hoist would normally do. It, it, it automatically normally slows down as the hook approaches the skid. So you have to be really, really cognizant of the fact that that ability uh, is not there anymore and you don't want to bring a guy up at 300 feet a minute into the underside of the skid because that's going to cause big problems. So there's actually this limit, um, there's motor limits on the on the hoist. So if you just drive up as the as the motor knows that the hoist, just due to the length of the cable it's out, is getting close, it starts to step the, the right. gearing gearing down on the, on the hoist motor. That's right. Yeah, I believe the uh, the newer models now, I think, are one uh, that we have currently fitted the black room. I think I... Could be, I could be making up a number here, but I think the number of limit switches that are built into that hoist is somewhere around the vicinity of 14. So there's one on the way out as it gets to a certain number. There's another one where you hit full speed, which is a little further out. Uh, as it approaches its outer limit, so all of the cable is deployed, it'll slow down and then totally stop at the opposite end as well. And then likewise, when you're bringing it back in again, uh, as it approaches the skid, you'll get a, a, a limit initial slowdown to like a, a reduced speed. And then the final two to three feet is actually a reduced speed again. So if you that, that's all based on on a, a readout meter inside the hoist mechanism itself. It doesn't actually know how much cable is, is beneath it. It's just basing on where the position is on the drum and things like that. So if you were to manually cut the cable, the hoist has no way of knowing you've done that. And those limit switches are, are quite ineffective at that point. Fantastic. Yeah, there's heaps of information in there. Uh, the next one I might tackle, or David, we'll throw it to you because this is probably the the whole reason we're having this this conversation, and and the I guess the the origin for your company is back to the dynamic rollout. So, do you want to yeah expand a bit on that, and and maybe just give the, the circumstances where where that came into into play with uh, with Dave's death earlier? Yeah, so I know we're running short on time, but just essentially, um, oh, look, that no, rest- no, no rush on time. as more. I was just conscious of your time, so yeah. In terms of the podcast, don't worry. <laughs> go, go for it. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Appreciate it. Yeah, so essentially, that accident was uh, it was a night rescue operation uh, up at Mount Charleston, fairly high altitude, um, up around the the close to the nine thousand foot range, uh, which again, total uh, normal operation for us, uh, trained to do it, proficient to do it. Uh, weather conditions were pretty good, and uh, it was just a single 
adult male that had gotten lost uh, hiking around up there on some trails. So I got off trail, eventually got ledged out. So the uh, crew responded, uh, did a briefing, flew out there. It was decided once they got on station, they located them because of the proximity to the terrain. The um, the rotor blades were going to be you know within our policy, not super close, but you know fairly close to to the terrain. So in order to expedite the process, they decided uh, they were going to lower Dave down. Uh, on the hook and uh, have a rescue strop device, which is a device that's used for uh, a couple of different types of rescues. A lot of it's for water type operations, but essentially what it is, just a device that a rescuer would wrap underneath the arms of a victim uh, and then secure them uh, with a secondary device and then uh, raise you up with the rescuer. So you go up together, two people together. So what uh, they had discussed is to lower Dave, uh, get him on the ground, uh, leave him hooked up, put some extra slack in the cable to allow him to work, and then attach the strop device and then do a double up kickoff. So basically pick the victim and Dave all at once. And then, uh, you know, slowly as they're recovering him towards the aircraft, just gently sort of fade away from the terrain. Uh, and the, and the, the thought behind that was it was just going to minimize the exposure close into the, the terrain with the aircraft and the rotor blades. So he was located, Dave was sent down, and everything was going fine. And when the strop was hooked up, the strop was attached to the hook first. Uh, and as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, how that gear can rotate up and around the gate on the hook, which as Rob mentioned, if it's non-locking, if a, de- a device like a carabiner or something like that can actually get up over the top of the gate in just that position, when tension's put on it, it can open the gate. So the strop was put on first, and then Dave's carabiner was put on second over it. So uh, once he got the victim briefed and was getting ready to be brought up, that's what we theorized happened was Dave's carabiner rotated up and into that position. And uh, when he gave the signal to raise and uh, slack was taken out of the cable and tension was put on it, uh, just as they started to come off the ground and the ship started to just slowly drift away from that terrain, and there was a fairly significant drop-off it popped the gate and he became disconnected and uh, basically fell probably about 300 feet initially before he first hit the train and then uh, continued down a little bit further from there. Uh, And the fall was definitely not survivable. So yeah, it definitely, you know, it hits home with us because like I said, we lost a very dear friend and a very phenomenal SAR officer and just a, a phenomenal human being. But that was essentially kind of what happened. And then, uh, the crew, it, it took them a little bit of time to locate him. And uh, once they did, one of the, the smartest things that we did was we actually in the, immediately launched another complete separate crew to come out in a different aircraft, swap roles. And then that second crew continued the mission at that point because the first crew was obviously very affected by what they knew had happened, you know, especially once they located him. So, you know, in a case like that, that's definitely the best way to handle that situation so that, you know, the folks that are kind of, if you want to say their head are no longer in the game, you know, are kind of removed from it. And then a fresh crew is brought in to kind of handle the situation. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's basically what happened with the accident. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine being in that crew after that and, and then still trying to operate. I mean, obviously, professionally, you've got to do what you can do, but um, that would have just been absolutely terrible. Uh, yeah, it would have been absolutely tragic. Yeah, it was. It was devastating. You know, again, and uh, there's a tribute to Dave on our website. There's a video that there's a production company called Mountain Shadows that had been doing a lot of 
recording at the time, actually. They were uh, looking at doing uh, possibly a show on the unit and the rescue operation. And they're based in Vancouver, a phenomenal group of guys. And they actually took a lot of their footage and they put together an incredible tribute video that we have a link to on our website. So really encourage anybody, if you don't know anything about Dave, go to the website and if nothing else, just watch that video and read the story about him just so we can kind of get the word out there. Because uh, in addition to giving really good training and preventing accidents like that, we really kind of feel like if we you know, if he's, if he's always remembered, he's never forgotten type of a thing. So encourage people to do that. Well, Dave, we might just touch on one more topic and then we can give a bit more detail about the, the courses that you guys run and, uh, again, resources where people can go grab some more information. But now moving into NVG operations, what are some of the, the considerations now for, for winching? Yeah, so when it gets into doing hoisting at night, essentially the the techniques and the flying are, are very similar as far as what the approaches look like and what the hoist operator does and how the cable is being run up and down and the gear and all that stuff. That essentially remains the same. The big thing that ends up, you know, that we end up teaching in those courses are, you know, how does the pilot now adjust to fly and do those operations on the goggles? And then uh, with the lighting, how does the hoist operator do the job, you know, with just either aircraft belly lights or a hoist light or, you know, the, basically the reduced lighting to do the hoisting. So essentially what we do remains the same. But from the pilot's perspective, the biggest thing, as I said earlier, it all has to do with uh, reference point. It's much more challenging at night. It, it can be done very safely if you're trained to do it. But once you get in over the target, you have to have a really, really good reference point. Typically, the hoists are a little bit lower if they're over open, flat terrain, just because as you go up higher, as you can imagine, if there's no contrast and there's no distinguishing features for the pilot to look at, either under the goggles or through the goggles, it's really challenging. You just don't know when the aircraft's starting to move. And the hoist operator will, when we do these types of operations, as I said earlier, we'll tell the hoist operator that we don't have a very solid reference point. So we'll ask them to pick up the frequencies of those calls, telling us, hey, you know, stop left, come right to. Uh, so they do it a lot faster to tell us because a lot of times we just don't notice it as quickly as we would during the day. A lot of the time is just spent flying those same slow, flat, shallow approaches over the target and then picking up the reference point. And then a big part of it is setting up the lights properly. Really, the best thing that you can do is flood the area with light around the area of your reference point. And if the aircraft has belly lights, which they typically do, that'll give you a little bit of ambient light that kind of floods forward, especially if you're in close to terrain. And if you have a fixed landing light, that's going to give you some light as well. And then in almost all cases, you'll have a steerable searchlight. So what I typically do is I will pick a reference point, like say the portion of a rock outcropping and just have it generally illuminated as much as possible. And then me personally, I prefer to transition and look under the goggles, which if you're close enough, you can do. Uh, you can also look through them just fine, but you have a little bit more of a limitation to your depth perception, uh, but that works fine as well. But really the biggest thing is picking a reference point and then setting up the lights properly to be able to see it. One common mistake is to kind of give for, for pilots out there that have never done it. And if you're just kind of trying to wrap your head around how you do this, one thing that we do right off the bat is we'll fly out there and we'll let the pilot put the light, like the steerable search light on their reference point and then try to hold the helicopter there. Because initially what everybody wants to do is in theory, if you think, well, if I just keep the light on the object, then the helicopter is not moving. And essentially that's not true. If, and you can demonstrate this, if you just take a flashlight in your hand and you point it at an object, you know, sitting there in your living room, 
you can keep the light pointed at the object and you can move around and just keep the light pointed at it and the light remains on the on the object so you know in, in reality you're all over the place and you have no idea because this thing's just sitting there perfectly with the light on it so for the pilots uh that's the biggest thing it's all about reference points and then properly using the lights and then as far as the back goes a lot of the stuff that we teach stems from their equipment that they use all the lighting has to be compliant. Uh, the aircraft has to be MVG compliant. And what I mean by that is essentially there can't be any sources of light in the cockpit or the cabin that are white or that would actually overpower the goggles because the goggles essentially just take light and they amplify them. So if they take in uh, a lot of light all at once, uh, it basically overpowers them and then the pilots can't see. So uh, all the lighting has to be compliant. The aircraft has to be compliant. And as far as the gear and the, and the folks in the back, one technique that we we highly recommend and it works really well is having some sort of a light on the hoist itself and then some lights on the rescuers on their uh, on their wrists. And a lot of folks just use regular chem sticks like glow type sticks with just wristbands like Velcro type wristbands. But if the rescuers crack two of those and actually have, you know, green or red work the best on their arms, it's it's a huge benefit to the hoist operator to see the hand signals that the rescuers are giving as they go up and down on the cable. Uh, and then also there's some aftermarket products that you can actually attach to the hoist itself hook and uh, provide light as it goes up and down. And then, you know, kind of lastly, a, a workaround that that a lot of agencies do, if, if you don't want to spend the money on an actual light to attach to the hook, you can just take some some chem sticks or glow sticks and uh, tie them off with a, a weak link type of a, of a rope that would break away if it snagged on something and just crack those. And now the hook essentially has a light source on it. So it makes it a lot easier for the hoist operator to see the hook as it gets into an area, especially if it's confined. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I've got uh, little people starting to wake up in my house. So there's maybe some background noise as we, uh, as we go on. Dave, and, and I guess we'll take team with you, uh, with you, Rob, in terms of, yeah, just talking about the courses that you run and the setup there at, uh, at SR3. Yeah, you want me to go first, or Dave, you want to lead things off? Yeah, Rob, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing is here is that we're getting we're getting requests from a whole bunch of different uh, different people from different agencies and different types of work, and we're starting to see hoisting, particularly in North America, get used uh, a lot more for things like work access, power line maintenance, things like that as well, just generally getting guys in and out of, of hard-to-reach locations, and it's it's been amazing how how diverse the the requests have been that are coming in. Uh, I, I think Dave can speak a little more to obviously his extensive law enforcement background. So we do have a, a heavy uh, interest in in law enforcement stuff, especially as, as agencies start transitioning to hoist equipped aircraft from from not having that capability uh, before. But I think that the big thing we're trying to trying to pass along is, is that we as a company have have dedicated quite a bit of time now to to looking at a whole bunch of different agencies and looking at what everyone around the world is doing in all different facets of, of the industry. And, you know, a lot, a lot of guys have, have come through the industry with one background and then they've been, you know, whether it be a military guy or a bush pilot or whatever it is that they might have done. And a lot of guys can maybe have not hoisted in, in a variety of different environments too much. I mean, there, there are exemptions, obviously, but some guys may have only done SAR, and so to get into the power line work can be a real challenge. And so we try to we try to pay attention to what's going on in, in all that, uh, kind of areas of the industry. And then if someone comes to us and says, hey, even if they want to be trained in, in one particular type of work, 
there's things that are happening in, in other in areas of the industry that, that are cross compatible and, and we can draw upon all those experiences from all those different places and people and and ideally try and provide the highest level of course that we can because we've gone out there and, and taken the time to, to get the information from everywhere so that so that basically they don't have to, you know. Okay. So do you want to just list off the types of the, the types of courses that you run? So yeah, essentially we on on the helicopter rescue side, specific to hoist operations, uh, we have the ability to train hoist operators, uh, rescue specialists, which are essentially uh, the folks that are that are going up and down on the hook and doing the work on the ground. And then I think one thing that stands us apart with some of the other uh, places that do training is we actually have the ability to train the pilots as well, uh, both day and night if it's required. So those are kind of the three uh, core groups of folks involved in the hoist operators that we train. And then as far as the training programs go, i just give you a, a little bit of an idea. A standard one for, say, two pilots, two hoist operators, and uh, anywhere from two to, to maybe probably the most we would be, be able to do is maybe eight to ten rescue specialists, but would be in a two-week course. Those courses typically would be the first day is going to be all ground school, uh, classroom type stuff where you go over the theory, the legal portions, um, review of emergency procedures, and essentially everything to do with hoisting. The second day, what we typically do is we split it up uh, into two parts. The first part is doing mock-ups out in the hangar with the aircraft, um, letting the people actually work the gear in and out of the cabin. Uh, The pilots are included in that as well. And the one thing that we do uh, that's extremely useful is we, we actually have a, a virtual reality setup that allows the hoist operators and the pilots to work through the, the process and emergency procedures together and work on the communication before they actually get into the aircraft, which huge benefit to it because it's, as you can imagine, it's much cheaper than actually firing up the aircraft and going and flying around. So we do that to introduce the basics of the conning commands and uh, that communication between the pilot and the hoist operator. Uh, and then after that, we start flying. And there's a variety of techniques that I won't get into that, uh, you know, essentially that, that we run through for basically a day uh, inland course. Uh, and then there's some advanced courses as well that basically run through the same thing, uh, but at night. Essentially, that's kind of a summary of it. Guys, well, thank you so much. I mean, in terms of a primer to, to hoisting, uh, that's uh, look. I'm just looking at it's about an hour and a half we've been we've been going for. So uh, I, I think that is going to be a, a fantastic resource to for folks to listen to, just to get you know either a quick refresher if people haven't done hoisting for a while, or if you've never done hoisting and sort of looking from the outside in. Uh, there's been been some really good stuff uh, covered there. Uh, so yeah, guys, thank you so much for that. And I guess just in terms of of website to find you guys or to find you online and other resources, where can can folks go to? To, uh, to see what you look like and, and get more info. Yeah, so website is sr3rescueconcepts.com and we're also on LinkedIn and Instagram. We typically put up a lot of really good content. Um, there's a blog on the website that we put a lot of stuff up there and then the Instagram is actually really awesome. There's a lot of content. We like to really push out stuff, actual, uh, just basic techniques that, that will help people that are doing what we do in the industry to make it safer. So yeah, essentially that's the the best source and then if you want to email rob or i directly we can put that in the uh the comments uh, for this episode and then uh links to our our profiles and bios on the website as well dave thank you so much rob thank you so much for, for hooking this up as well and uh, yeah i'll look forward to catching up with you guys soon yeah, yeah i really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to come on the show and uh like i mentioned earlier before we started a huge fan of what you're doing with the show i've listened to a ton of the episodes mix so uh 
I really think it's a, it's a bang up job you're doing. And, uh, you know, honestly, can't thank you enough for doing this. The industry, I think, really appreciates you because I know I do. Oh, Dave, thank you. Uh, that's great feedback. Gang, that was David and Robert from SR3 Rescue. And if you jump on uh, Instagram, it's probably the easiest. So Instagram, and you'll find them at SR3 underscore rescue. And if you jump on the website, Rotary Wing Show, looking for episode 77. On there, you'll find a couple of pictures of, of Dave and Rob, so you can you know, see what they, they look like to go along with their voices. And there's a video there showing what the dynamic rollout on the sling hook actually looks like and how that works in terms of the de-shackles and, uh, and the mechanics of how that can possibly roll out and the protection against that. So I guess that's you know, given some of the context and story there about uh, Dave. It's really important to have an understanding of how that dynamic rollout uh, works. Not on the podcast today, just because four people was probably going to be a bit of a handful, is Jason Connell. And Jason is a co-owner at uh, SR3 with Dave and has done 19 years in law enforcement. And some of his background, you know, Jason's a trainer and a team leader on missions for mountain rescue, lead climb, dive, uh, tactical medic, helicopter operations as a rescuer and a crew chief. He's also an EMT and paramedic. So a pretty good background between the, the lot of them. If you enjoyed that, please do give some feedback or any input you might have on, in the comment section on the webpage uh, blog section there. And I can definitely get uh, Rob and Dave uh, both to, to chip in there and reply to any questions that you might have. A really big thanks to all the supporters on uh, Patreon. So Chris uh, is actually over in, in WA and in Perth and we've been backwards and forwards and I've convinced him to get into uh, the virtual reality side of uh, flight sims. Eric, Gareth, Hal, Heath, Jake, Jason, John, Kev. Kev actually turned up at the uh, World Helicopter Day here in Brisbane and helped uh, volunteer. So thanks, Kev, again, very much for, for your help on the day. Uh, Kirillin, Mark, Michael, uh, Pedro, Peter, Rendell, Shannon, and Tony. Again, thanks very much. It just helps offset a little bit of the, the hosting and the bandwidth fees. And most important of all, just keeps my, uh, or helps keep my, my wife on side so I can keep doing these. If you are able to support in any way at all, you can please uh, go across to rotarywingshow.com forward slash support and you can find some ways there just to, uh, yeah, give us a hand in keeping these shows coming out. Okay, so that is it for this episode. What I've done is to take the audio off the tribute video to David Van Buskirk and added it here at the end of the podcast. So this is from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police YouTube channel and was produced by Mountain Shadow Productions. This is the same video that Dave mentioned in the interview. You can find the video also on the website sr3rescueconcepts.com. The voice you hear talking is that of David Van Buskirk, and for much of the video, he's sitting in the back of the Huey just talking to the, to the film crew. And obviously, if you're watching the video, it's then a cut with B-roll of them doing different rescue operations and, and training. So I'll leave it at that, and you can uh, listen to David. David Van Buskirk, and I'm with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Search and Rescue Detail. Uh, I was born and raised in Las Vegas. I've been with the police department here for the past 13 years. At the time, I was working our narcotics section, and I had uh, long hair, earrings, the whole nine yards, you know, and uh, went from that to this. I saw an announcement for Search and Rescue that was posted, and once I saw that, I basically uh, 
thought to myself, that'd be fun to do. So I put in for it and I got it. The first year, it's almost like drinking out of a fire hose because you're just getting blasted with information and training. We're in the business of saving lives. We go out with SWAT as medics. We go out to Red Rock to help people or some of the other areas in town to help people that are injured. And if somebody is injured, and if I'm the one providing the care, I'd like to be able to give them the highest standard of care that I can possibly give them and be able to do the best things that I can do for that person. Search and rescue and air support, it is like a jungle because you have your different animals. Um, you know, you have different things going on in the jungle all the time and you have different animals that, that are out doing different things at different times. So, you know, within here you got your lions, uh, you know, like, like I'd say Gavin, Darren, Jim Roberts, you know, those guys are definitely, you know, your lions. You got your, uh, you got your monkeys, like Jason, you know. Jason is a hard worker. He wants to be the best that he can be, uh, so he pushes himself hard physically. Uh, he's always trying to train and do things to keep himself way above just the basic, you know, baseline standard. Strategy is just to uh, be careful because of the uh, heat today and uh, make sure I dominate Mike and Jason. Oh, get some, buddy! <laughs> Who's buying beers? Jim is uh, uh, Jim's one of my best friends. Um, he's uh, probably one of the, and I kid you not, he's probably one of the smartest people that I know. He's a very intelligent guy. He's very dedicated to what he does, so he pretty much lives, eats, and breeds search and rescue. And he's just one of those guys that just always seems like you're always trying to keep up with him because he's always two or three steps ahead of everybody. One of the girls on the team ended up sending me a text message uh, with a picture of Jim from when he worked on the ambulance maybe 20 years ago. And uh, it has to be one of the funniest pictures of Jim that I have ever seen in my life. And uh, he's got this huge mullet with a big mustache. And uh, one of the guys on the team uh, was a city fireman. He, uh, he had a baseball card printed up. Although it aggravates Jim to no end, it is pretty funny. I think everybody keeps these cards in their pockets and you know, when you ever have those doubtful moments, you just pull it out and look at it and ask yourself, how would Jim handle this? <laughs> in normal EMS, a lot of times the first thing that they want you to assess is scene safety. And I can tell you this, in, in search and rescue and what we do, 99.9% .9 of the time the scene is not safe. I could be up on the mountain rescuing someone who's got a fractured ankle um, one minute and then the next minute I could be down in town doing something with SWAT. It isn't, it isn't scary it, because you have so much on your mind. I never really find myself having a lot of time to think about it because I'm going, going through all the checklists in my mind of things that need to happen. Because that's just, that's real life, that's just the way it is. And you have to be focused and you have to keep your attention on, on what it is that you're doing and the task at hand and, you know, completing the operation and seeing it through. You get hurt if you get lost, if you get stuck, or if you require medical attention. Stay where you're at, we're coming for you regardless.
people ask me about uh, search and rescue and working on the team, you know, I, I just think of it not so much as a team, but more like a family. We are literally putting our lives in each other's hands every day that we come to work. The trust that we have in one another, it's more like a family bond than it is just, just a team or just a group of guys that work together.